Don't forget Matthew 5. We are coming back there. We will be continuing that afterwards. I want to talk tonight uh, about how we position ourselves for a move of the Holy Spirit. How do we position ourselves for a move of the Holy Spirit? I don't know, just out of interest, how many of you have heard of a place called Asbury? Been tracking something happening at Asbury? Yeah, thank you. Um, so there's a university in Kentucky called Asbury. You wouldn't know of it because it's not particularly well known. Very small little town, 5,000 people. And uh, three times a week, they have compulsory chapel services there. It's a Christian university. And the students go into these chapel services. And um, it's just a part of their weekly routine. Well, um, probably a month or two ago now, they had a very normal chapel service. All the students went in. Somebody spoke. I think his name was Zach. I can't remember his name exactly. Was it Zach? Anyone know that? Does it matter? Doesn't matter. Zach, the, the funny thing about Zach is he was the assistant soccer coach in the university, which I quite enjoyed. It's, it's so insignificant, they don't even call it football over there. Assistant, and he's the, assist, the assistant, the assistant soccer coach. Uh, he's also does something else on faculty. Anyway, he spoke on Romans 12, and he thought it was an absolute stinker. He texted his wife shortly afterwards and said, I've just preached an absolute stinker. It was terrible. And most of the university students left the room and a handful stayed and came up to the altar at the front of the chapel and got on their knees and started confessing their sin before God, about 15 to 18 students. Um, they didn't leave, they stayed, and then other university students started joining them at the front and doing the exact same thing. They then started worshipping spontaneously for hours upon hours, which became days upon days, which became weeks upon weeks, and more and more people came in. The whole university's in there. Other universities started coming, and then the word gets out, and the whole of Christendom descends on this little town of 5,000 people, and in the end, they've had to restrict it from outside visitors because the infrastructure of the place just can't cope with the tens of thousands of people that are turning up there. And it sparked other mini revivals, outpourings of the spirit, whatever you want to call it, at other universities in the States. And a number of friends whom we really trust here, who lead churches in London, went out to um, visit Asbury during the time, and it's still going on, but during the time, presumably, when you were allowed to go and visit. And um, the pastor of a church called King's Cross Church, KXC, a guy called Pete Hughes, him and his wife, Pete and B, they lead the church there. And they were um, one of the churches, as well as St. Mary's Brian Square, that grafted into St. Peter's, so sent people to come and join our church here four and a half years ago. Well, he went with some of his team. And he absolutely loved it. He came back speaking about all, all that God was doing there. People are getting healed physically and also emotionally. Um, they're seeing people there come to faith. They're seeing people released from demonic oppression. The, the sense of worship is beautiful. Like it's quite ropey apparently. It's just a bunch of students just singing songs and then people pick it up from the congregation. But the sense of the presence of God as they worship apparently is tangible. It's gentle, but it's very, very powerful. And there's lots of public confession going on, lots of testimonies of the Holy Spirit at work in the students' lives. By all intensive purposes, it looks like an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a serious move of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know whether you even care, but 
Is it a revival? Is it an outpouring? I actually don't care. I don't think you should care. It doesn't really matter. But often people talk about revivals as being lots and lots of non-Christians becoming Christians en masse by, because of a move of the Holy Spirit, whereas outpourings tend to be the church, the Christians in the church being awakened and being filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and having a newfound sense of their identity in Christ. In my opinion, an outpouring should always lead to a revival. So as the church is mobilized and as we're filled to overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit, we suddenly realize who we are in Christ and we realize the power that we carry because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave lives in us and we start going out with more boldness and more confidence and that, I believe, should lead to a revival. So an outpouring, if it's stewarded well, if it's led really well, should always lead to a revival. But there are also revivals, think of the Welsh revival, Hebrides. Um, there are revivals where God just does it sovereignly outside and then people are literally knocking down the church doors, wondering where they can come so as to have their sin dealt with. They've just got this sudden sense of not being right with God and they're seeking out church to get right with God. And that's where we saw some of the revivals of end um, of old age back in the day. Anyway, the point is something's happening there. And as a result of our friends Pete and B, Pete going out there with some of his team, they've started doing prayer meetings at King's Cross Church at KXC in a midweek prayer meeting. They had over 250 people come to a midweek prayer meeting. Now, I don't care what size your church is, 250 at a Monday night prayer meeting is decent. It says something's going on. Let's put it into context. We used to get what, Jerry? Eight here? Yeah. Let's say, I mean, and to be fair at KXC, that before they weren't getting that many. And for the size of the church, it was hugely disproportionate. But people are turning up in their, in, in their droves and experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Another friend of mine who's on the leadership team of a church called Saint, which is in East London, just over, over the river, rang me this week. And he said that they've seen more people come to faith, more non-Christians give their life to Jesus in the last two weeks than they've seen in the entire six years since they started the church there. It's like there's been an acceleration of what the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, the question for us, I think, as a church is how do we position ourselves for a move of the Holy Spirit? If there is a move of the Holy Spirit coming, and I'll speak a bit about that in a second, how should we position ourselves so that we can respond to whatever it is God is doing? But first, I just want to answer this question. Why do we want a move of the Holy Spirit? Why do we need a move of the Holy Spirit? Now, some people are sometimes skeptical about these sorts of things. They don't know what to think about it. Some people think there's a bit of hype. There's been revivals of past that have become about the leaders of the revivals as opposed to Jesus, and rightly so. People have been skeptical about those as well. So often it's led Christians to say, well, why do we need a move of the Holy Spirit like this? Should we even be interested? Well, I think we really should, and let me explain why I think we should be interested in this sort of thing and be praying for this sort of thing. A number of months ago, me and my wife Panau and our three children after the morning service, went to Ikea for lunch. And we did it because it was half term and we wanted to take the kids out for lunch because they were off for the following week. And we came out of our church service here on Sunday morning, 10.30, beautiful service, lots of people here worshiping away, it's a beautiful prayer time afterwards. We went to Ikea and we walked upstairs to the restaurant to go and get the meatballs that don't taste like meat but taste very good. And we're queuing up and it is Rammed. I've never seen anything like it. It's heaving. You, could, you can barely move. We had to wait over an hour to get our food. 
absolutely heaving. And as I'm looking at this and comparing it to what I've just come from at church, I found myself getting more and more annoyed at these people. I started speaking in the queue quite loudly and now had to tell me to stop because I was like, why are you here? Why are you here? I don't understand why. It's flat back. It's flat pack furniture. It's terrible. Terrible quality. Looks like It looks alright, but it's bad quality. These meatballs, not even meat. Why are you here? Why are they here? I don't know why they're here, but what it does make me think is, we, what, what's going on here, what, the, what God is doing here is beautiful, and never ever despises the, 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 the beginnings, small beginnings. It's a beautiful thing. And I will keep doing small and slow for as long as it takes. Like, we're here for the long haul. We're going to be here for 20, 30 years doing what the Spirit's asking us to do here. Unless the Spirit moves us on, but we'd have to make it very, very obvious. Lightning bolts, that sort of thing. We are here, and we are up for slow and long. We're in, we're in it for the long game. But when I look out there, when I look at what's happening outside of the church falls, and we're considered to be a fairly buzzing church in southeast London... I realize every time it's a drop in the ocean, absolute drop in the ocean. We are nowhere. We're nowhere. And so I'm constantly praying for an acceleration. I don't want just long and small for the next 30 years. I want a quickening. I want an acceleration of the Holy Spirit because of what God's doing. There's nothing we can do to make it happen. I'll talk about that in a second. But I'm praying for God to move in power. I'm praying for God to do what he's doing in Asbury, to do what he's beginning to do in other churches in London, here at St. Peter's. Why? Because I think Southeast London needs it. I think the people around this church in this area need the presence of Jesus. They need to give their lives to Jesus because they can find fullness of life in him. When you think about the population of Broccoli, it's 20,000 people, the Broccoli Ward. At this church, we probably gather about 300. It's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. And most of us come from other churches, or most of us have come from another church, and we've joined here, we haven't converted to Christianity, and most of us live in other areas. So we're spread out. Really, it's incredibly diluted. And so when we're praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're praying for a revival. We're asking God to accelerate what he's doing in the Spirit, so that we can see more of heaven come on earth. We need a move of the Holy Spirit. So how do we position ourselves for a move of the Spirit? Whether it's revival, whether it's awakening, whether it's outpouring, I don't, I don't really care. I just want more of the Holy Spirit. I want more of the kingdom of God. How do we position ourselves? Well, there's a guy on staff called Andy Coombe. Many of you will know him. He's on leadership at St. Peter's. And two weeks ago, for four nights in a row, he woke at 1.15 a.m. every morning. Imagine how annoying that is. Not 1.14, not 1.16 but 1.15. Now, Andy being Andy just kind of weathered it for three nights on the trot. And then on the fourth night, when he woke at 1.15 a.m., he suddenly said to himself, maybe God's trying to tell me something. And so he looked at his clock against 1.15. And so he decided to go into his electronic journal. He keeps all of his um, quiet time notes on, a, on his iPad or computer or whatever. And he types in 1.15 into his journal. And the only thing that he has there that's referenced to 1.15 is Mark 1.15 here, which we're going to read in a second. And so he thought that was for him. He thought God was speaking to him. And specifically, he thought that God was challenging him to believe. Not just to repent and turn in, into, in the other direction, but start to believe the things of God. Start to believe the things of the kingdom. But then he kind of started doing that. And he, he's got beautiful stories of starting to step out in the spirit and actually believe that Jesus does what he says he does and can do it through him. Again, on the Monday, he woke at 1.15 a.m. And then I think one more time. 
And then he started to say, well, maybe this is actually a word for the church. It's not just a word for me. And he shared it with the leadership team here at St. Peter's, and we prayed into it. And we genuinely do feel like this is something that God is speaking to us about. And the reason I think it's something that God is saying to us collectively as a church is because this is Jesus telling us how to position ourselves for a move of the Spirit. Telling us how to position ourselves for the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to pay attention to it. So here we go. Let's break it down. It says this, Mark 1.15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Read it again. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So let's break it down bit by bit. Firstly, Jesus says the time has come. Now the Greek word that he uses there for time is a word that they use repeatedly throughout the New Testament. It's this word kairos. And it's a particularly special word. And it recognizes the fact that not all of time is of equal significance. So when you wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth, that is not necessarily a significant time for the kingdom of God. It's important for personal hygiene, but it's not a significant time where heaven breaks into earth. It's just a part of life. You're going through life. When you eat your breakfast in the morning, this is not a kairos moment. A kairos moment, I love it how one commentator puts it, says this. A kairos moment that Jesus is referring to there is a moment heavy with eternal significance. It's a moment heavy with eternal significance. There's loads of these moments throughout the Bible. The baptism of Jesus, 30 years of no, very few Kairos moments, a few kind of miraculous, well, big Kairos moments during his birth, and then silence. And then 30 years in, he's baptized. Kairos moment, a time heavy with eternal significance. Jesus then starts his public ministry here in 115. It's a kairos moment. It's a time heavy with eternal significance. And then you've got the healings. And then you've got the cross, which is the ultimate time heavy with eternal significance. And then you've got his resurrection from the dead. And then in Acts 2, you've got the infilling of the Holy Spirit as the disciples are filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. These are all kairos moments. And we have kairos moments in our own life as well. Not all of time in our life is of equal significance. You know this. If you're here and you consider yourself to be a Christian, the day that you became a Christian, the moment that you became a Christian is a, is a period of time. It's a time heavy with eternal significance. It's the moment in which you give your life to Jesus. If you're here and you're married, your marriage was a Kairos moment. It was a time heavy with eternal significance. We have these moments, but I would also argue we have these moments in church as well. Throughout the history of the church, there have been kairos moments. There have been periods of time heavy with eternal significance. And why do I mention that? Well, I mention that because I believe we could be on the edge of something heavy with eternal significance in this church, but also in this country as churches start to position themselves for revival and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not equating this with the cross. I'm not equating this equal in value as the resurrection or the, even the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that this is going to be the same kind of level of Kairos moment that we're talking about there in the life and ministry of Jesus. But I do think something significant is happening in the church. And it's probably because we're desperate, because we're thirsty, because we're open. When we had our weekend away, if you weren't on the weekend away, we had someone called Jackie Pullinger 
come and visit us and speak to us. She was absolutely exceptional. And there's one thing that she said that stuck with me since she came on the weekend away. She said, as a church, we're all waiting for these massive moments where the wind of the Holy Spirit comes in power and blows through the room like in Acts 2. We want and we pray for those moments. It's like an acceleration of what the Spirit is doing. It's these Kairos moments. It's times heavy with eternal significance. But she said, the problem with the church is we don't know how to deal with the low-level winds, the light winds of the Holy Spirit. She likened it to sailing. She said, unless you can learn to sail when there's very little wind, all that's going to happen when the wind blows in power is you're going to capsize. And so I think it's important for us as a church to be able to prepare for what the Spirit's doing, to prepare when there's a little bit of wind, to know how to navigate and to sail in the Holy Spirit so that when the big winds come, when the movement of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, we kind of know what we're doing. So we're not just flat on our face, not kind of good for anybody. Because what I want to happen when there's a move of the Holy Spirit in this country is I want every single person in this room to be filled to overflowing for the Holy Spirit and not necessarily for it to be just about healing our own brokenness, which we're going to get to in a moment, but for us to be propelled out of those doors into our weeks, carrying his presence and his power and his purpose and his love and his compassion for everybody in our workplaces, on our streets, because that's how revival comes about. When people realize who they are in Christ and the power that they carry, and they start to see the kingdom come. So let's learn how to receive the Spirit when there's very little, or sail and navigate what's going on when there's little. So what are we talking about when we're talking about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What am I getting excited about? What might you be getting excited about if you choose to get excited about this sort of thing? Jesus says it in the next bit. He says, the time has come. There's a moment heavy with eternal significance, and he says, this is it. This is what's happening. The kingdom of God has come near. What do we get excited about? We get excited about the kingdom of God. The whole purpose of this church is to play our part in bringing heaven to earth. This is exactly the same language. We're getting excited about the things of the kingdom. Now, a couple of things to notice about the kingdom of God. Firstly, there is no kingdom without a king. So let's just get everything straight here. All that is happening in this church, all that will happen as the Spirit starts to move in more power, all that's happening in churches across London, across the country, in Asbury, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that are happening, all of it is focused on the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's all directed towards him, and it's all because of him. You can't have a kingdom without a king. That's why Asbury, so many of the, kid, the students are coming up to the front, they're giving their, they're, they're just confessing, they're falling on their knees and they're confessing their sin before God. They're saying to themselves, again, I'm just going to completely reposition myself under your lordship. I'm done being lord of my own life. Lord, I confess this about my life, I confess this about my life, and I say that you are lord and savior again of my life. So the kingdom of God has a king, and the king is Jesus. So revival is about nothing other than the person of Jesus. But then it's also worth noting, particularly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but also an experience of church, is that the kingdom is both fully here, but also still to come. So the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is yet to come. A little bit hard to get our heads around that, but think about it in the context of Jesus, of God being the Alpha and Omega. So Jesus is the beginning, the source of all things. Everything exists through the power of Jesus, and everything is directed to the glory. All things are directed to the glory of Jesus. Same with the kingdom, because he's the king of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God has come. So Israel in the Old Testament had a king, just everybody didn't know it yet. 
It was being revealed to them as well, and they were to be a light to all the nations. When Jesus came, there was no doubt what the kingdom was like. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, you look at the person of Jesus. So therefore, the kingdom is coming through the person of Jesus. He says, if I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cast out the demons, oppression, if you're oppressed by the demonic forces, evil, which is the kingdom of darkness, which is the power clash between the two kingdoms, then the kingdom of God, he says, has come upon you. But there is also a sense, biblically, and throughout church history, that the kingdom is still yet to come. How do we know this? Because everything in our life and in our world and in our city and in southeast London and in our workplaces and on our streets and in our families and amongst our friendship groups is not like heaven, is it? There's parts of it that don't feel like heaven. There's brokenness, there's pain, there's death, there's mourning. And so therefore the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. So the kingdom isn't static, but we do know what it looks like and we can spot the signs of it. You want to know what the kingdom looks like? Look at Luke 4. If you want to go to the Bible app on your phone, Ashlyn, if you can get it, you stick it up, but don't worry too much about it. This is how we know what the kingdom is like. This is Jesus saying, standing up the beginning of his ministry, and he stands up and he says in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, if you want to know what heaven on earth looks like, it's this here, all in and through the person of Jesus. Notice that he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And then he ends it by saying, he rolls it up, he gives it back to the attendant, the eyes of everyone's on him. And he began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, in him. Here is the king. The king is revealed. This is what the kingdom's like, and here I am as the king bringing it about. Let's have a little look at what it looks like. Firstly, it looks like good news to the poor. That's both literal poor and also poor in spirit. We've been talking about this with the Beatitudes. So are you here and do you feel poor? Do you feel literally poor? Anyone feel literally poor? You're not going to say that. Anyone feel poor in spirit? You're not going to say that either. Well, if you do, good news. Because Jesus is here and the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him to bring good news to the poor. Why is it good news? Because you don't have to pay for it. Stop trying to pay for it. Stop trying to work your way into the kingdom of God. You don't have to pay. It's good news for the poor. It's free. It's grace. It's because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Here we go. Second thing, proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, I'm going to make a distinction between prisoners and oppressed. I'm not, I haven't heard this before. I heard it from someone else. I'm not sure how entirely correct this is, but let me make it, and then you can stone me for heresy later. If we're in prison, it's because of what? We've done something wrong. Or it's an unjust system. Yeah, interesting. We'll come back to that in a second. We'll come back to that. So normally, hopefully, if the justice system works, we're in prison because we've done something wrong. So Jesus is saying here, because of our sin, we, get in, we imprison ourselves. We're imprisoned. There is a law in the spiritual realm. We might not know it, but when we sin, the Bible says we create a foothold for the enemy. And when we create a foothold for the enemy, it means that we're imprisoned in a certain area of our life. And Jesus has come, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on him so as to set people free from prison. What does prison feel like? It feels like shame. It feels like guilt. It feels like condemnation. 
How does Jesus set her free from it? He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He paid the price so that we don't have to live our lives in prison as a result of our sin. Instead, we come to him and we confess our sins and he's faithful and we can walk free, completely free, and experience his freedom. So the oppression then. So oppression. You're oppressed because somebody else is oppressing you. This isn't generally something that you do to yourself or because of sin. It's something that's done because of somebody else's sin. And Jesus also says there, he's here to set the oppressed free. Nation of Israel, a prime example of this. It's just oppression after oppression after oppression. Jesus says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to set the prisoner free and to set the oppressed free. So does anyone here, you're not going to answer it, so I don't know what I'm asking. Do any of you feel imprisoned? Do any of you feel oppressed? Good news. Jesus is here to set you free. Now here's the thing. Without a move of the Holy Spirit, he's going to do it. Ultimately, he'll do it when he comes again or you die and go to heaven. But when there's an acceleration of the Holy Spirit, when there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, things tend to happen quick. I don't know why. It just tends to be how it is. And so if we're moving into this time, this is the sort of thing we should expect to happen when the kingdom of God comes near. Recovery of sight for the blind. We are all blind. I hope this doesn't come as a revelation to you, but you're blind. In many areas of your life, you're blind. I am. I'm totally blind. In fact, I have to have people point it out to me on a regular basis where I have blindness in my life. I have a therapist whose sole job is to point out the blind spots in my life. I'm telling you, it's an hour well spent. I wish I paid for it. I don't because he's amazing. He gives it to me free. He's constantly just pointing out blind spots in my life. We are all blind in different ways. And when the spirit of the sovereign law comes in the person of Jesus, he opens the eyes of the blind. Why? Because when you're blind, you hurt yourself. You bump into things. You bump into other people. You crash your car. You get yourself in a whole lot of trouble. And if we can have our eyes open, it's like the light of the Holy Spirit just comes across the darkness and eradicates it. And we can finally see. It's like being led out into wide open spaces. We want Jesus to do this. We want him to. Do you feel blind in any way? Do you know you have blind spots in your life? Good news. Jesus is here to open our eyes. And it's all thought that Jesus is explaining here. It's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee, which for the Jewish nation was a taste of the fullness of the kingdom of God. Happened every 50 years in Israel. So that's what it looks like when the kingdom of God is near. And that's here now because of Jesus. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming, like in Luke 4 amongst us. We've had tastes of this here at St. Peter's. We've experienced it. Those testimonies that we just heard, that's Luke 4. That's the kingdom of God. That's what heaven looks like, feels like, tastes like. But also the kingdom of God is yet to come. Revelation 21, don't have time to turn to it. But it says at some point Jesus is going to come again. There's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more um, mourning. The old order of things have passed. Do you know what? Could you just keep Mark 115 up? That's an aggressive logo. Just stick. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Um, Sorry. It's just me. You can ignore that. It's yet to come. So Revelation 21, the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness. That means that the fullness of heaven will come. The fullness of the presence of God will be present on earth. Heaven and earth will be the same place. We won't experience the hurt and the pain. And we are in a process of going from the kingdom of God coming up until the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness. And here's the weird thing. As a church, we are charged to be filled with the Holy Spirit to bring us closer to Revelation 21. So that's what we're doing. That's our job, if you like. 
And when we experience outpourings of the Holy Spirit, it feels like that's quickened. It's accelerated in our life. But it means that we need to get prepared. We don't make uh, movements of the Spirit happen. Anyone that tells you that is talking absolute nonsense. Revivals don't come because of anything that we do. If they did, then it wouldn't be an act of grace, would it? We've worked to make it happen. However, we can position ourselves ready. So when we start to spot the signs that we should do this just anyway, let's be honest. These are the words of Jesus. They're relevant whether there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit or not. This is why I almost don't care whether there is, because this is still a good thing to talk about and for us to prepare for as a church. But if there is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I don't want you lot to be on your face completely flawed, capsized like a boat, because it's too powerful. We need to be able to prepare ourselves now. So how do we prepare ourselves? Firstly, Jesus says we repent. Uh, let me just get that to Mark. Matthew, Mark, 1.15. Time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. So you have been walking in this direction, and Jesus says repent and turn around and walk in this direction. What characterizes the two directions? Well, it's less of a what and more of a whom. Or a who, or a whom, I never know how to use that. Whom or who, I think it's a whom. Whom, in whose direction are you walking? Not whom's direction. In whose direction are you walking? When we're walking this way, like not Jesus' way, we are, we're walking in this way, we're walking in the direction of ourselves. We have us at the center. Really, I mean, I don't know how helpful this is, but you know, back in the day they used to say sin is the three-letter word with I in the middle. I mean, it's trite, but I kind of get it. I get what it's saying. It's basically saying when you haven't repented, you're walking in the direction. It's all about me, myself, and I. Paul talks about it as satisfying the desires of our flesh. We're just trying to satisfy ourselves all the time. If I had time, I'd, talk, I'd um, walk you through Galatians 6. If you want to know what this direction looks like, the kind of things you'd be involved in, just read Galatians 6. So the bit before, the direction of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, there's the things of the flesh. Just one, let me point one out, Adul adultery. So um, Sahar's going to speak a little bit about this next week. Uh, idolatry, adultery, not adultery, idolatry, two very different things. Probably not that different. Idolatry, <laughs> idolatry is putting your trust in anything other than Jesus. So in these times, it was literal idols made of stone and in some sense, that was easier. You could see that they're mute and dumb. They're useless. People still fell for it. We're all falling for the similar things. What are you falling for? What are you putting your trust in? Are you putting your trust in money? Are you putting your trust in relationships? Are you putting your trust in your family? Are you putting your trust in your career progression? Are you putting your trust in your housing situation? Are you putting your trust in whether you are able to enjoy life, the thrills that you get? I don't care what you're... But it's all it's idolatry. It's putting your trust in something other than Jesus. And here's what happened when you repent. You walk in this direction, you at the center, me, myself, and I, you hear the call of Jesus, you turn around, and you start to follow him. That's repentance. And crucial bit in that turning process is asking for forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross so that when we have that turning moment, we can come and we can say to him, rather than feel ashamed and condemned, we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of making it all about myself. Forgive me for walking in that direction. Lord, I'm sorry. And I choose to turn now. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. I want to live my life with you at the center, following you. I don't want to go too far on that because I think the second thing's 
really important. So we're going to have an opportunity to do this in a moment when I'm finished rattling on. This could be for the first time. You could be doing the repenting bit for the first time. So you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian. And this is the moment at which you're going to say in your life, right, I'm in. I've heard enough. I'm going to do it. I'm going to have a change in heart and a change in mind. And I'm going to turn from making my life all about myself, following my own desires, gratifying the, the desires of the flesh. And instead, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Jesus on the cross, his blood poured out as a sacrifice for all. So all of that stuff as a result of me doing life on my own with me in charge that separates me from God the Father is going to be dealt with in one instant because of Jesus on the cross. And instead, I'm going to be absolutely free and able to see Jesus. Jesus in front of me and follow him as a result. You might want to do that for the first time tonight. You might want to do it for a second time. It might be that you've spent a lot of time. You are a Christian. You became a Christian. You had that turning moment in your past, but you spent a lot of time walking in your own direction again. We all do this from time to time. You suddenly, it's almost like you veer off, but you veer off so much you do a U-turn and you start going in that direction again. And Jesus calls us to repentance again. You turn around and you walk back the other way. It might be that, and this probably be more of us, that we are walking in the right direction. We have repented. We've turned around, but we're veering off. And it's like we're doing this windy walk towards Jesus. And when we veer off a little bit, we want to repent and bring ourselves back into alignment, put him at the center of our lives again so that we can continue. Why? Because that's where we find fullness of life. When we're in alignment with the king, we experience the fruits of the kingdom. What are the fruits of the kingdom? It's righteousness, peace, and joy. Who doesn't want more righteousness in their life to feel like they're not condemned, full of guilt, full of shame, right with God, right with other people. Who doesn't want more peace? We all need more peace. That's how you get peace. You align yourself with Jesus. You follow him. Who doesn't want more joy? It's exactly what Danny was talking about earlier. We need the joy of the Lord to be our strength. And that's so far from earthly happiness that's circumstantial. It's not even in the same category. So we repent. But of course, it's not just turning around for turning around's sake. We turn around for a reason. That's why Jesus has the second part here for the preparation for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Or to be honest, just to live your life in fullness. It's not just repent and turn around. It's repent and believe. So what does this word believe mean? I think the perfect way to sum up what believe means, Mark gives it to us in the next verse. So... Mark has Jesus saying here, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come, they repent and believe the good news. And then it's separated by this little title, but it wouldn't normally be separated. The NIV have put these titles in. It says straight after that, verse 16, Jesus then walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. So this is what it means to, to believe. So you repent, you turn around, and in order to believe, what do you have to do? You have to start walking. That's belief. You start living your life, and you don't trip on stands. That's sin. You start living your life, walking in the direction of Jesus. That's belief in him. What does it mean? It just means trust. You start trusting him. You start trusting the promises he has on your life. You start trusting him for all of your needs. You decide not to trust in the other things that you used to trust in. Instead, you believe in him and who he is. There is content to this, though, and this is important. So listen to this carefully. There is content, and the content is this. Jesus is, this is the belief, the change in heart and mind. This is what we trust in when we walk. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Son of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. Read the Gospels. Ask yourself, who is this person? I'm telling you now, it's God in flesh, and it's powerful. Jesus is who he says he is. 
His death on the cross has the power that he says it has. Which means that when you ask for his forgiveness, his death on the cross is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's just fancy Old Testament language for saying it pays the price and it gets rid of the junk. God is like the rubbish man of the world. We give him our bags of rubbish and he takes them away so that we have the freedom. So we don't stink anymore so that we have the freedom to be able to connect with our Father in heaven and be in relationship with him. But it's not just that. It's not Jesus is the Son of God. It's not just Jesus' meaning of the death on the cross is true for us, but it's also that he rose from the dead. And so therefore, as we're walking in this direction, belief in Jesus, we are filled, as I've said, with the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. That means means that we start to notice the fruits of the spirit grow. So Galatians 6, read this in your own time. If the acts of the flesh are all those horrible things, one of which is idolatry, then the fruits of the spirit is peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruits of the spirit start to grow in your life. And I'm telling you, when those things start to grow in your life, because you're walking in his direction, you're believing in him, you start to live the life that you were created to live. It's far more enjoyable. Jesus calls it fullness of life, and it's exhilarating. It's a roller coaster. It's the best life you could ever possibly live, and we can live it now if we repent and we believe. So this is not about church. It's not about revival. It's really not about revival. It's all going to happen when Jesus returns anyway. It's not about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not about leaders or anything like that. It's also not actually just about turning from sin. This is about living our life in relationship with Jesus. That is our purpose. That is what we're created to do. Being obedient to him as our king. We want the fruit of the kingdom. We've got to recognize that he is king. And we give up. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Give up your life and you'll find it. You want to find your life, we give it up. And we hand it to him. So, finally, before... We pray, does your life look like you actually believe? Does it look like you're walking in the direction of Jesus or does it mainly look like you're walking in the direction of your own desires? We had a prophetic word a couple of weeks ago, three prophetic words about uh, Revelation 22. It's a beautiful scripture. I'm going to read it to you. But the prophetic words were about the river of life flowing from this church out into the streets of Broccoli. And... Um, many people have had this word about the church before. In fact, this little bit of blue tarpaulin, whatever this is, flooring, often people come in and go, oh, look, there's a river of life. Now, what they don't know is there was subsidence in the middle and they couldn't find the same color. So they just stuck a bit, <laughs> they just bought the lighter blue for some reason, and that's how they put it out. But anyway, we're glad to take the prophetic words. The river of life is flowing from the church out into Broccoli, out into southeast London. Revelation 22 puts it like this. This is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. And this is what starts to happen when we see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and revival. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side, the river, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's no longer going to be any curse. Any of the consequences of sin, sickness, disease, famine. The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city. We've gone from the garden to the city. And his servants will serve him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp 
or the light of the sun. For the, listen to this. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I mean, there's far too much to unpack there. We should probably do a separate talk on that. But that is what happens when the river of life starts flowing in and through the church. Now, that's the temple. Who is the temple, according to the New Testament? Close. Well, yeah. Who else is the temple? We are. Yeah, we're the temple. So Jesus says in John 7, 37, Come to me, all who are thirsty, drink from me. And your taste, your experience, you'll be able to drink the water of life. And out from you will flow rivers of living water. He's pointing to Revelation 22 in the temple and what it's like. When we experience the Holy Spirit filling us, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, it flows out for the healing of the nations. This is why an outpouring of the Spirit should always result in revival. Because if we keep it in here, it will stop flowing. If we take it out there, we'll notice it. Start to bring everything to life. Life will explode around us in our families, our workplaces, on our streets. So how do we prepare or what do we do in order for the river to flow? It's very simple. Come to Jesus. It's exactly what he's saying there in John 7, 37. Come to him. How do we come to him? We repent. We turn around and we run as fast as we can into his arms. And that's what we're going to do now. So let's stand. Let's just shut our eyes, because I'm going to ask some different people to put their hands up, so it just enables us to have a bit of privacy as we do that, so that it doesn't feel too exposing. So is there anyone here who wants to give their life to Jesus for the first time, to repent? You know that you've been walking in the opposite direction to Jesus and tonight you've heard enough and you want to turn around, you want to ask for forgiveness and you want to choose to put Jesus at the center of your life and follow him. Just as everybody's eyes are shut, do you want to just put your hand in the air and I'm gonna, no one's going to expose you, no one's going to say anything, I'm just going to give you a prayer. Is there anybody here? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Beautiful. Well done. So keep your eyes shut and I'm going to pray for you. This is a Kairos moment. This is a moment heavy with eternal significance. You're going to look back at this moment the rest of your life. So just make this prayer your own. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins poured out. I'm sorry for living my life with myself at the center. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused myself as a result. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused other people. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused you, Lord. I choose now to turn my life around and put you at the center.
please would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Just make that prayer your own. And you can ignore everything else I say now. And just focus on being filled, infilling of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to feel anything. 